Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. If you're at a startup looking to gain traction or are fortunate enough to be experiencing growth, your product's uptime is everything. Nothing's going to kill your momentum quite like an outage. So it's often your ops and infrastructure teams, the ones getting paged late into the night, who are the hidden heroes of your business. And this week, we're lucky to be joined by one of our own heroes in this area, Charity Majors. Charity's been on call since age 17 and has been every sort of systems engineer and manager, most notably at the mobile app development company Parse, where she was the very first ops infrastructure hire, and later at Facebook, where she managed a team of production engineers responsible for the care of over 500,000 apps. Today, Charity is the co-founder at Honeycomb, a real-time observability tool to help you understand, run, debug, and optimize your own production software. In a chat with Intercom software engineer Inger Dapur, Charity explains when a startup actually needs a dedicated ops team. I'm going to hire a team of like three ops people and have them do all the ops work, right? That's how this traditionally goes, and it's, and it's not a good pattern because you really want everyone to continue to participate in the reality of creating a really high-quality operational culture. Why engineers need to get comfortable with failure? And our systems are getting way more complex all the time. And if we are brittle, if we are afraid of failing, if we are trying to make it so we can never fail, well, that just means when we do fail, we fail hard and we aren't used to it. And the role cross-pollination plays in a healthy engineering culture. I hate the monoculture that arises from a team that sees nobody but each other every day and works with nobody but each other every day. And, you know, having my ops guy then sit next to my salesperson has resulted in some of the most entertaining and creative ideas that have been amazing for us. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. As always, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. It really helps us bring new listeners to the show. And now, let's hop into the studio with Inger Dapur and Charity Majors. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. So welcome, Charity. It's great to have you with us today. So many of us at Intercom are very, very excited about Honeycomb. And we really, really love your blog and Twitter posts. So it's great to be chatting with you today. Just to get things started, tell me about your journey from being an engineer to now being a founder. Yeah, it's crazy. It was it was very accidental. It was kind of, um, I, I think of myself as much more of a person who executes not a person who has ideas, you know? I think a lot of us in the on the back end approach software this way. It's like, all right, you got an idea, whatever. People like it, I'll make it work for you, you know? I've always taken a lot of pride in that. And the problem that we're trying to solve became one that I literally felt like I couldn't do my job without, you know? We had built this thing at Parse um, using a lot of Facebook technology, the platform. You know, we were serving over a million users, a million mobile apps on Parse, and we had all these problems of, High cardinality, you know, platform problems, things where we built this elaborate system using on top of Scuba to help us diagnose what was happening in production right now. And the idea of going back to not having that was basically intolerable. So that's how I find myself here. <laughs> so is that how Honeycomb was born? Yeah, that plus uh, my co-founder, Christine, the way she tells the story is somewhat different. So at Parse, you know, I ran the backend infrastructure Team and Christine, my co-founder, built our analytics product. So she's building this analytics product. It's like mixed panel or whatever, you know, for mobile apps. And she kept having this experience where our users would write in and ask her how they could answer these questions using our analytics product. And she'd be like, 
oh, this is so embarrassing. Uh, you can't, you know, because it's using time series aggregates on top of Cassandra. And she would have to go and look it up inside what we were using internally to answer their questions. And when I told her that I wanted to build this, she was like, oh my God, I have felt this pain so many times. So she comes at it from much more of the front end and I come at it from like the operational side. So pretty much like Honeycomb was born out of you wish you had something like this on your previous jobs. But looking at your career as a whole, what was it that drew you to this area and made you want to specialize in operations and infrastructure and yeah. look more into monitoring and, and such? So I really fucking hate monitoring. Like, I <laughs> hate it. I hate everything about it. In a very real way, this, this startup was born of hate and not wanting to ever have to do this again. <laughs> like our plan in the beginning was, well, you know, people are shoveling venture capitalist dollars at us. We'll just take their money, build something, we'll fail, we'll open source it, and then we never have to live without it again, <laughs> right? Like that was the master plan. We're accidentally um, kind of succeeding. But <laughs> what brings me to operations is, so I grew up at a farm and I have a very low tolerance for things that don't need to be done, you know, for the frills. I don't sit here and play around with technology for the most part. I am highly motivated by doing what needs to be done, like what has to be done. And the thing that I've always loved about ops is how close it is to the metal, you know, how close it is to the business will succeed or fail based on what you do here today. Maybe I have a God complex. I don't know. But I really enjoy that pressing need and that urgency. I feel quite similarly. I, I love operations and infrastructure specifically because it allows me to take like monsters and make them simple and yes. approachable. Yes. And I really, really yes. love that. So. Like at the opposite of that, so we've had Mark Helland on the show and he joked that one of the most difficult or interesting things that he had to learn as a founder was how to mm. become a salesperson. God. So I wonder, yeah. is there something that like, what's the most unexpected skill that you picked up from being a technical co-founder and something that now you have to care about because you're a founder? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he is absolutely right. Sales is hard. So one of the things about Honeycomb that I value and that I think everyone who works there was drawn there because of this, is that we've all been through so many failed, failed startups. <laughs> we've been, <laughs> and it never fails because of the technology. You know, it's never because of the tech. This has been very humbling to realize as I grow up, you know, just like startups, companies do not succeed or fail on the backs of which programming language you choose. You know, it's all about execution and that's execution on the business side, the sales and the marketing and the support. Like I, I may be overcorrecting a bit, but it's like everything matters more than the tech, you know, and maybe this is just because we have the tech handled, you know, that's never been a problem. Everything else is hard. And when we're, when we're talking to candidates who are coming in the door, you know, this is a refrain that we repeat over and over and you can tell how well they're going to like working there almost by seeing whether their eyes light up and they're like, yes, this is true. Or whether they just kind of get this distaste in their eyes and they're like, ew, so you don't care about what I do, you know? But like, we value all of these skills, the squishy skills around, you know, customer success and around sales. It's really hard. I, I was trying to sell Honeycomb for almost a year by myself and I've never bought software before. So this is a really hard conversation for me to learn. Like, how do you ask for a dollar value for the thing you've been pouring your lifeblood into? And I, and I come from the open source world. So I, I don't know how to do that. And I had almost just decided that we had failed and this thing couldn't be sold. And I was just like, well, I'm going to hire a salesperson as a last, last ditch effort. 
And he took us from zero to hundreds of thousands of, of dollars within like five weeks. And I, I suddenly went, oh, <laughs> this is a skill set. <laughs> I had known that, but I had not viscerally just like internalized that, that in this really intense way. So you mentioned candidates. When should a startup start caring about hiring like the first operations specialist? And yeah. is there anything <laughs> that signals that, hey, it's about time? Yeah, um, this is an awesome question because believe it or not, we are actually at that stage now where we're asking the question, when do we need to have an ops team? And, and in some ways we're cheating because we've gotten a long ways with me and Ben, you know, in a, in a month or two of work, we basically did all the ops work that we've been piggybacking on for the last year and a half. But I think most people hire ops too soon. And I think they do that because they aren't willing to, or don't know how to learn the basics themselves. Now, first of all, as a founder or as a hiring manager, the first step in making any good hire is to do the job yourself. You know, I think at least to fill out the contours of it, to know how to recognize a good one versus a bad one. And people are not often willing to do that because it's painful and time consuming, but I highly recommend it. I think that most people should start hiring a dedicated ops team when When you have a rotation that all of your software engineers are participating in from day one and they're doing okay, but over time, more and more of their time is getting eaten up in ops work that they can't automate away. And at some point you need to call in a specialist. Sometimes people can just call in a consultant who's really good at this, at helping people make the jump, right? Like the thing that you don't want to do is be like, oh, okay, I have 10 software engineers. I'm going to hire a team of like, three ops people and have them do all the ops work, right? That's how this traditionally goes. And it's, and it's not a good pattern because you really want everyone to continue to participate in the reality of creating a really high quality operational culture. I love that. Your love for chaos decides where you should go in terms of like smaller company or uh, a larger one. So how soon should a startup care about observability? And at the opposite end, when it's an established company that already has, say, like multiple vendors that solve different problems like performance and dashboards and logging, which can become a bit of an operational hell. Oh, God, yeah. Um, where does event-level monitoring fit into all that? And how can it be added without it making it worse? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. And the thing I love about this question is there's no template, right? There are patterns that you can learn from, but everybody has to learn this over again for themselves. How soon should a startup care about observability? Literally from negative day one, from the first day. I, this should be so much of a habit that it's like commenting your code, you know, um, because this is literally how, how your code explains itself back to you. And you don't know what's going on. Even if it's just a dummy, even if it's just a, you know, a throwaway piece, you could never count on it being a throwaway piece. And you're always going to want to understand how it works. And part of the reason that people even ask this question is because there's been so much impedance or so much friction involved in getting started. You know, well, okay, I'm spinning up my, you know, my day one writing a dummy app for, for Honeycomb. Do I really want to spin up a bunch of infrastructure to also monitor that? No, you don't. Um, but there are services now. When you already have a lot of vendors and you already have a lot of, you know, stuff that's been instrumented and implemented, there are a couple of places you can start. Starting from the perspective of the people who are consuming it, which should be everyone, how do you make it simplified? How do you pick something that, that spans a lot, of, a lot of ground and gives people power? This is why we're building from the standpoint of fuck dashboards. Um, <laughs> a dashboard is a place you go to stop. It's a, it's a place you 
consume passively. You're not asking a question. Uh, you're not actually, you have no way of getting to raw results, right? So you're looking at aggregates, you're looking at dashboards that have been constructed out of aggregates. And every dashboard is like just a tombstone of a past failure, right? A, a past outage, a past event where you're like, I'm going to construct a dashboard. It's going to tell me exactly how to find this problem the next time. And it does, but you have new problems all the time. And so you, your past is just littered with dashboards. I think that people need to start thinking about starting points, about questions that they can ask and iterate on. And in a lot of ways, this, this is not new computer science, right? This is like a very BI type approach to problem solving. You know, instead of like trying to predict what problems you're going to have, and then you stare at a dashboard, you know, that it contains your prediction, which may have been days or weeks or months or years ago, instead you get good at asking questions iteratively. You know, you start with something simple and then what about this? And what about that? And you start following this trail of breadcrumbs that you have laid down for yourself or that your team has laid down for you. And I've seen teams switch from dashboards to these iterative, you know, interactive tools. And the secret is that you become a better engineer, right? Data-driven debugging is a way of taking small guesses about the universe and testing them in real time. And it's so much better than trying to predict what you're going to need to know months in advance and then relying on those past predictions. I think that's really interesting. I've been thinking about that as well. And you know how when something breaks, you have the tendency after you fix it to like go in and add more checks, like more tests yes. and more logging and yes. more dashboards to make sure that you're never going to run into that problem ever again, which is never yeah. true. You always like, it will always happen again. So like for me, it's kind of like, being deliberate enough about what you yeah. really need rather than like just jumping into like this universe of possibilities yeah. just because they're I available mean, to you. Yeah. And it's a good instinct, right? We want to make it better for, for the next person to stumble across this problem. But we have to get comfortable with failure. We have to be more comfortable with failure. Than, we have this very rigid, brittle approach to failures, right? Oh, it happened. Oh my God, let's make it so it can never happen again. Well, it's going to happen again. And it's not going to look exactly the same. So you're not going to recognize it in the same way. A thing that my friend Gregory said that I find really insightful is in the future, like treat all of your systems like distributed systems and you'll be mostly okay as a rule of thumb. Like whether you think you're running a distributed system or not, when you think about it, it's totally true because distributed system, like the computer science that deals with it is largely around complexity right? And our systems are getting way more complex all the time. And if we are brittle, if we are afraid of failing, if we are trying to make it so we can never fail, well, that just means when we do fail, we fail hard and we aren't used to it. We don't have the tools to deal with it. I think that the shift that I see really mature teams undergoing is instead of monitoring on everything, instead of like paging people on symptoms, instead of, instead of like being really paranoid about things breaking, don't get me wrong, your taste for quality should still be high. But instead, just start thinking about, well, when it breaks, what happens? You know, when it breaks, <laughs> let's break it this way, you know, and we're going to find it this way. And we're going to surface all this detail. And we're going to ask questions all the time. And honestly, you need to page yourself a lot less. I think that the vision that I see for the future is very much the only things that you page people on, the only things that you wake people up for during the night are when your customers are hurting, right? And that means that all you have to have a like paging alert on is, you know, the, the traditional, you know, um, 
correctness and uh, error rates and request rates and uh, latency for end-to-end checks that stress your critical paths. And that's it. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So, changing the direction a little bit from fires and chaos, you recently wrote a really passionate blog post about something that you described as the engineering manager pendulum. Can you talk a little bit more about this pendulum and, well, pretty much the way it influenced your career or the way you approached, like, switching from an engineer to management? Yeah, yeah. so I, I've always been a fairly reluctant manager. I love engineering. I'm, <laughs> I find joy in my job when I'm riding my bike home late at night and I'm just high on... I'm replaying the day, you know, I fixed this, I solved this, I learned this. I, I've never known as much joy, really. My wife would love to hear that. But like, I, I love that feeling. I don't feel that way about management. And yet I, I find myself in management over and over. And it always feels like the right decision. And this has never felt like a problem to me because I love joining a company as a, the first infrastructure hire, you know, taking them through building all the early stuff and then hiring a team who takes over from me. I love that. So I never angsted about it. But recently, a couple of my friends seemed really unhappy about it. And I wrote this blog post for them because I wanted them to feel okay about their lives, honestly. And I was kind of surprised that it it struck as much of a chord as it did. But I think it's so good. When I think about the managers that I've had in my life who I really respected, who I really learned from, there's not many. And the ones that did help me were people who were recently engineers. You know, they still had a very visceral causal like link to their engineering careers and i think that tech leads if you aren't hands-on your technical skills they atrophy they just do you know like when i was at facebook i got myself taken out of the on-call rotation finally and i couldn't believe how quickly i felt like i just needed to step out of the technical discussions because my information wasn't up to date and it wasn't the best information i think that the best managers we're recently engineers and the best engineers have always spent some time in management. I also really kind of just want to 
want to lower the perceived bar for what being a manager is. Like, it's not this mystical thing or this career like, oh my God, I'm powerful now. I'm a manager. You know, it's not like that. It's, it's just a parallel career track. I really believe in paying engineers and managers the same or like at Slack, the engineers make more than the managers do. I think that makes a lot of sense as a leveling mechanism. I think that we should be able to go back and forth regularly and it shouldn't be seen as gaining and losing status. So many engineers only go into management because they get sick and tired of being left out of the decision-making process. You know, that's usually been my impetus. I'm just like, fuck you. If you're not going to invite me into the room where these decisions get made, I will make myself a goddamn manager so you can't leave me out. (laughs) And that sucks. That is not actually what you want the motivation to be for the people who are your support apparatus, who are supporting the engineers on your team. You know, that's a shitty motivation. You want the motivation to be like, Okay, I want to deal with people problems. Otherwise, you get reluctant managers like me who are just like, I'm grouchy about this. Yeah, I'll go on one-on-ones, but what I really want to be doing is pounding a keyboard, you know? And there are some times in my life when I do want to support people. You know, I'm I'm making it black and white because I do that. But you want them to go into management with the right expectation and the right motivation. And that is not the drive for power, (laughs) you know? The one thing I will say that I didn't say in the blog post that keeps coming up, and I I kind of wish I had touched on this, is... There are two ways of becoming a manager. There's becoming a manager, leaving leaving hands-on technology behind and climbing the ladder, which is totally legit. And then there is, no, I want to stay close to the tech. I love the tech. I want to go back and forth. Both of those are legit. But if you want to go up the manager and climb track, you need to be a kind of a big company or starting something because you need there to be a progression. And, and you, they're the only ones who need middle managers. You know, startups don't need middle managers. And that's good. Like we need executives who come from tech and who are good at that and whoever, who are out for our best interests. And they cannot keep going back to being hands-on. What you don't want to be is like trying to straddle those two worlds and being someone who's been like a front-level manager for like five plus years, not climbing the ranks, while simultaneously becoming very stale in your technical needs. So how do we demystify career progressions in tech? Oh, and God. Yeah. How do we like create opportunities for engineers that, you know, without making them feel forced that they have to yeah. join a management track as the only for option? Sure. Oh, that's such a great question. And I'm 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 thinking about this a lot right now because people always I've always been good at recruiting. Like I brought a third of Parse's engineers in. Um, I've always been good at recruiting and people have always commented on it. And I've always just kind of brushed it off, you know, well, okay, now I have a company now, now I have to think about it and, and try to think about it without like losing it, you know, like riding a bicycle. Ah, <laughs> um, I think that I've always been good at recruiting because I don't ask people to do the things that they've already done, you know, and if I'm going to be completely honest, one of the reasons that I started a company is because I, I was so insulted by the jobs I was being offered when I left Facebook. And, you know, nothing against those companies. They're great companies. But they were offering me jobs to do the same thing that I was doing or the same thing that I had already done. And I wanted to go on and do bigger and better and new things. And I want to work with people who feel that way too. You know, I want to work with people whose eyes light up at the idea of a challenge when they're like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do that. That's terrifying. I'm in, you know, I mean, that's who I want to surround myself with. That's who I want to be. And I feel like most hiring managers, most people who are trying to build teams are too conservative about this because it's risky, right? It's always a sure thing to ask someone to come to your company and do the thing that they did at their last three companies, kind of, or that's how it's seen. I think it's a bigger risk. I think that human potential is vast. 
I think that most of us are rarely asked to step step up and do bigger things. And I have a lot of uh, respect for people who do those big things and who kind of shoulder muscle their way into bigger things too. I think that when I'm looking at hiring someone in, I, I always think to myself, you know, well, where will they be in a year? And managers don't do this enough. Managers don't think about what can I be giving my people to push them and drive them. Even though if you're a people manager, that's like your, your one job, right? If you're a tech lead, your one job is the, the product, the, the technical problem in front of you. And if you're a manager, your one problem is the people underneath me, hierarchical language, dude, it's a thing. It sneaks in everywhere. <laughs> the people on my team, how are they growing? How am I pushing them? How am I asking them to step up? Because we hunger for this. You know, we complain about it, but we hunger for it. So like for an engineer who's been engineering, you know, um, the, the caliber of the problems that you give them. How much pre-digestion are you doing? You know, this is a real art to being a tech lead. You know, giving every person on your team something to do that pushes them but doesn't overwhelm them and then giving them the nudges that they need to do something that is new and hard. And a lot of this is not visible. There's like this, there's this visibility gap between management and engineers. You know, it, you've been, had this experience, I'm sure, of having a tech lead who, who gives you exciting problems. You know, and who can calibrate, who can put themselves in your shoes and just go like, Ingrid's going to love this, you know, and it's going to be really hard. Right? Have you had this experience? Yep. 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 Definitely. And it's 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 the best experience. Like, we're here to grow. I I love learning new things. So I I don't ever want for that stop. We all show up every morning um, for a combination of, you know, something greater than ourselves, making the organization succeed, and something that feeds ourselves, which is, you know, pushing ourselves and learn something new. And this is a very personal process. It's a very personal and individual process, which is why those frontline managers are so key to every organization's success. Like a frontline manager who cares about crafting problems for each person that push them is going to be someone that the people are loyal to and don't want to leave. And this, over the long run, is really, really amazing for the organization. Um, and it's not a process that you can automate. It's not a process that can be generalized. There's always going to be a vast amount of creative work in it. Yeah, this kind of uh, made me think of the fact of like how much I love being wrong and how much I yes. like love learning new things. And when I'm wrong and like I can work out why and like how to make it better and like get feedback from my tech leads or yeah. my managers, it makes me a better engineer at the end of the yeah. day. And it's the reason why totally I love tech is this balance of like, I don't know everything and I'm learning yeah. constantly, but then I also get to like really kick ass. Yeah. Um, and, and having the safety blanket, you know, like the safety net of, you know, if you totally fail, it's fine. People are there to catch you, yeah. but not coddle you. You know, it's this really, <laughs> really awesome, like needle to thread. With all that in mind, how do we build a team that is open to the value of diversity, uh, like both culturally, but also from a background diversity point of view, where security engineers work together with front-end engineers and operations specialists and customer support? And what would a future built on those values would look like? I hate the monoculture that arises from a team that sees nobody but each other every day and works with nobody but each other every day. And, you know, so I'm a big believer in like mixing it up, you know, have everybody sit with everyone. Having my ops guy then sit next to my salesperson has resulted in some of the most entertaining and creative ideas that have been amazing for us. Like I said, like we like to hire adults at Honeycomb and that means people who know exactly how hard other disciplines are. But you can know that from an academic perspective, and you can know that by trying to walk in their shoes. Now, trying to do sales for the past year at Honeycomb, oh my God, 
I know how hard sales is now. And I never think it's easy, right? So we've started looping our sales guy into engineering now. He's writing code. And I, I love this. I love cross-pollination. I think that this is where we find our most creative ideas. I think it's where we come up with the most unexpected questions. But asking unexpected questions is a great way to make everyone tickle that creative part of their brain because it's weird. I think that there's the, to answer your actual question, there's the baseline, don't be a jerk. Uh, don't be, you know, Uber. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> but I think that often we get so, so hell-bent well, or we have this paranoia about not achieving our goals. And so we get tunnel vision. You know, as leaders, we act like what we want people to do is not bring their whole selves to work, but like come in and just go heads down, write code all day, do what you do all day. But nobody can do that for a long time. And it, it starves the pieces of you that, that are human. And I think that asking people to bring their whole selves to work Understanding that people cannot do more than four to six hours of hard thinking work a day and encouraging that. And another thing that I say a lot, but I'll say again, is you're going to get more of whatever behaviors you praise. You know, we have to be really careful what we praise people for. If you're praising people, just like, oh man, John was like up all night, you know, on this problem. Yay, round of applause for John, whatever. Don't do that. That's what you're going to get more of. That's what you're encouraging. That's what you're saying you value. It's a lot harder to look for the successes that succeed are therefore not seen, you know, because the system, the system didn't go down during a release or praise people for taking their vacation, thank them, you know, be like, thank you. I can see how refreshed you are. And it's so nice to see you sparkling and energetic. And thank you. You were looking really tired. Thank you for taking care of yourself and be genuine about it. You know, praise things that you really do want to be, to see more of. And you know, the stuff when people are killing themselves, I'm not saying you can't, don't praise them publicly. You can thank them privately and pair it with something like, and please take Saturday off or Friday off, you know. But I believe that like, we have to see each other as human. We have to acknowledge our needs for balance because all of these things are necessary precursors towards a culture of play, you know, a culture of play and collaboration and willingness an ability to take a flying leap that may or may not succeed, but you, you want to try it and you think it could be amazing and you have the safety to fail sometimes. Yeah, I think that's what I would say. You know, encourage healthy work-life balance and try to cross-pollinate your people as much as possible and then wait for their natural human creativity to like jump in and take it that last five miles. That's such a great answer because I think at the end of the day, we're all humans. We all want to do a good job and be respected and be accepted and feel like we, we so belong. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a really great answer. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was great to Thank have you Thank you for on having me. Please come have a drink with me in San Francisco someday. I would love to. Or like likewise in, in Dublin. I, I live literally 10 minutes away from Whiskey Distillery. So oh, <laughs> I'm in the right. right neighborhood. <laughs> I, I've been thinking of making a trip to Dublin this year. That might actually just need to happen. <laughs> Please do. Let's make it happen. <laughs> awesome. Thank, Thank you so you. much. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. 
And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.